Hey guys, this is Gary, and welcome to another episode of Pod Wars. On Pod Wars, we like to dissect Star Wars, Marvel, and our favorite little nuggets of geeky media. I'm here today with my favorite little scoundrel, Justice. What's up, guys? And we're excited to have Trisha from the Beyond the Screenplay podcast join us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Trisha. Hi, guys. How are you? Now, before we dive into this we're going to be obviously talking a little bit of empire strikes back today but before we get into empire trisha can you tell us our listeners a little bit about your podcast kind of what you guys portray and a little bit of also the youtube series and how you guys dive into films Sure, absolutely. So I write for a YouTube channel called Lessons from the Screenplay, which is an educational YouTube show that breaks down screenwriting lessons and techniques basically from film. So the channel is run by Michael Tucker, and we do 10 to 15 minute videos that break down like one specific sort of screenwriting lesson from a particular movie uh, that does that screenwriting thing really well. So we get into like a screenwriting concept. We had a recent one on uh, A Few Good Men, for example, and we broke down the final like courtroom showdown between Jack Nicholson's character and Tom Cruise's character. And we broke down what are the elements that you need to like have a final battle in terms of in screenwriting terms. Um, And uh, from there, we also have like sort of an accompanying sister podcast that I'm a part of, as you mentioned, which is called Beyond the Screenplay. And we do that exact same thing, but like on a much more in-depth scale, where instead of having to summarize everything we love about a story or a movie into 10 minutes in a video, we talk about it for an hour. Um, And so that's myself, Michael, Michael Tucker who runs the channel. And then we have our two other members of the team, Alex Calleros and Brian Bittner. And we're going to be also dropping, I don't know if we're doing it before or after we drop this one, but we have a great podcast with Brian talking some solo. But today we're going to talk a little bit more about the original trilogy, what really drives people towards Star Wars. Now, Trisha, we've we've gushed on this show about Star Wars far more than anybody probably uh-huh. should. But can you tell us a little bit of your experience with the franchise and what kind of how you grew up with it what drew you toward those movies yeah you know um so i think i'm a little bit older than you guys i was born in 1986 um so i grew up mostly in the 90s and the 90s were a really interesting time in sort of like star wars fandom um where there weren't new star wars movies coming out when we grew up and we didn't think there were necessarily going to be new Star Wars movies for quite a while. So we sort of lived in this like weird in-between time where we had the original trilogy and a lot of us that had seen that when we were very young, um, you know, really enjoyed that. We have them on, we had them on VHS, you know, when we were growing up and, and we try to catch them on TV and that kind of thing. And then we were the ones who were in adolescence when the prequels came out. And so, like, I'm of the generation that sat on sidewalks at dawn um, to get tickets to see the prequels when the prequels came out. Um, So, I don't know. It's just, like, the original trilogy has such staying power um, because, I mean, this is sort of the essence of a theory. There are obviously about a thousand reasons. But there are these grand archetypal, you know, here with a thousand faces, like textbook sort of narrative myths and 
you can't get anything that is sort of more simple and enduring and compelling than that. And then you load it full of cool stuff like lightsabers and Wookiees and like space battles. And you have kind of the greatest thing in the whole world for young people and people that are older. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. Just everybody that I knew, uh, all of my, you know, growing up, all of my friends were guys and uh, they were just all, this is what it was. It was just all Star Wars all the time. Is there one that you particularly are fond of? Uh, of the original trilogy? Any, yeah, whichever. Oh boy, of the original of the original trilogy, it's pretty much a toss up between A New Hope and Empire. Um, I think you could argue all day about like which is the better movie, but I think A New Hope is has a really special place in my heart because it's the one you see first and um, just kind of never forget where you were sitting when you saw the Death Star explode for the first time. It's just magic. Um, and Empire is obviously an incredible uh movie which i can't wait to talk about with you guys so um i don't know i also want to say that like i'm a huge fan of the last jedi so but that almost feels like trolling you guys at this point or i don't know (laughs) i don't know if you're fans or not or okay but um uh you know it's it it has a lot of problems as a movie but there's so much that i like about it that like dollar for dollar that's like one of the ones i would reach for these days if there's just one i want to watch there, the way that we come when it comes to Star Wars is like uh, we have our opinions on it. Maybe it's some like Evan and Gary and I have talked about it a lot. But like when it comes down to it, just like the prequels, like there's going to be a generation who loves that movie. And, um, you know, it's it's Star Wars. And so we're accepting it and loving it for what it is. But there we might not agree with everything that happened. That's what our I think like our the general consensus on our podcast is about The Last Jedi. OK, so a lot of love just generally. Right. Yeah. And That's a good, good way to think about it. And the humility as fans of knowing we're not J.J. Abrams, we're not George Lucas, we couldn't do anything better. So I think that's yeah. half the battle with any kind of film. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, without like getting too much into like inside baseball, you know, I work in the film business, I'm a screenwriter. And so it's it's very much you just know how hard it is to get anything made. And so there's, ugh, you know, there's like just so much sympathy in my heart for anybody who's ever had to try to make a star Wars thing. It's just massively like you're, you're taking on, you know, almost an impossible task from the jump. And so there's just like any, you know, kind of anything that exists is something that kind of feels like a tiny miracle to begin with. So you kind of start from that point when you go to go ahead to take them. And I think, it's overall the franchise has kind of an uphill battle for content creators because it's so incredibly iconic and i think empire has really created a lot of that uphill battle (laughs) because if you ask if you ask most star wars fans probably a good majority would say empire is their favorite movie of the star wars saga i think on the podcast we've only had one guest so far who's not said empire is their favorite and it's it's really created just such an iconic pedestal for Star Wars for and then the content creators have an uphill battle to reach it. I think that that's fair. I mean, it's also you know one of the biggest issues just sort of looking at it like from a film history standpoint with this is that you're trying to create content <clears throat> now 50 years, you know, pushing 50 years after we like 
got, you know, started working on this sort of like a piece of, you know, IP. And so it's just not the same world anymore, right? Like we don't exist in the same world that George Lucas did at all um, when these things came about. And that goes, you know, with comes loaded with basically infinite complexity and, and sort of just issues and challenges, you know, the most basic being things like technology that you're working with, but also the movie business is not the same business at all that it was. And it's just, and it especially isn't right now. God bless. Like 2020 has wreaked havoc on the movie business and who even knows what, you know, Disney just made this huge announcement. I think it was yesterday about star Wars content coming out and moving forward. Um, but you know, I'm kind of, I'll believe it when I see it, <laughs> like, I'll believe any of it when I see it. I mean, I, I don't think Disney knows what's going to happen in the movie business any more than the rest of us really do, right? It's There's a lot of conjecture and uncertainty that's going on right now. And so, um, yeah, I think I think you're right that the in naming the mountain that creators operating in the Star Wars universe have to climb, um, especially right now, for sure. But... To kind of dive into the film here, I know yeah. I want to hear your guys' input. As uh, you've seen the Mandalorian, correct, Trisha? Have you seen like Absolutely. been caught up relatively? Awesome. Yeah. Now, I was kind of honestly a little bit worried going into this film because I love Empire. I was worried that I wouldn't love it to the same extent because of just basic aging in filmmaking and the fact that the Mandalorian and a lot of the creative current ip is so exceptional that it wouldn't be the same for me did you do you think how do you think this movie has aged overall with kind of the extensive additions to the universe with clone wars the mandalorian and whatnot i mean it's an interesting question i i don't think it's aged badly you know is the short version i think it in fact has aged really well um you know, putting aside the the different technology and sort of the way that we look back at, you know, the kind of technology that was available when uh, in 1980, you know, when this was made versus now. So just kind of setting that aside, I think that overall this still really holds up and, and there's a variety of reasons, but one of the biggest is that it's a, maybe the most character focused of any Star Wars movie. Like, the heart of this movie is the characters' journeys in a way that no other Star Wars movie, as far as I'm concerned, has managed to really zero in on. Um, every major scene in this is about deep character conflict. Um, this is the most spiritual, I want to say, of all of the Star Wars movies where that inner conflict is like, especially in Luke's case, but it, but in everyone's sort of cases is like sort of spiritual and, and about sort of like deep worldviews and things like that. And so I think for that reason, there's a timelessness to Empire. Um, the Mandalorian is tapping into some of that in a really smart way. Um, it's still an action series, um, but it is doing, you know, it's extending the world in a way that feels... Like it's taking a lot of cues from Empire. And so I think they make really good companion pieces, actually. I don't think they're at war at all. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because um, I 
I got up Friday morning and I watched the new episode of The Mandalorian and then I watched Empire right after that. And the one of the things that I was thinking about was, um, you know, when this was made, there was no thought of, you know, The Mandalorian or there's no like thought of like what what was to come. And and so I, I don't bear with me as I'm like word vomit and what, what, what I'm trying to say, like I've been trying to form this. But like one of the things that I've been like thinking about is, you know, how how did this does this movie change the way I feel about it? Because you know, they're, they're saying there's, there's certain like things that happen that like we now know, like that have been explained or expanded on, but in that movie it, it, it wasn't, or it hasn't been. And, and so like, does that, I didn't, I don't know. I don't think I have an answer, but like, does that change the way that I feel about the movie? I don't think it does, but like, it, it's, it's something that's very interesting to me. Like since it's so old and in the way that all Star Wars has come out, it's, it's, it's like this, this, this weird feeling that, you know, um, the, when they say these lines and these words were like, oh, like all these things flooded in my head, but, um, were they really mean in that one? Like they originally said, you know, those things. Right. Yeah. We're reading this movie now through like a lens of context that nobody in the movie had when they were creating it. Um, you know, the great example of course is Boba Fett, which, you know, we can get into, but he was never supposed to be like a big character. Um, Lucas didn't think of him as being that big or that important or, you know, didn't spend a ton of time working on his backstory or anything like that. And, you know, now we have this entire rich, like, spinoff world because fans gravitated toward Boba Fett and the the way that he was introduced in this movie and, and sort of like, I mean, I personally just think it's his jetpack. <laughs> just like, <laughs> like... Why does everybody love Boba Fett? Well, he has a jetpack, and that's cool as hell. Um, but you know, it's it's amazing to look at the different worlds, ideas, characters, um, things that have you know basically grown out of seeds that were planted here. And I think you're right, Justice, that looking back, it's impossible to separate ourselves now from all of that stuff that we know but it is cool to see it again and tr and to try like it's almost sort of a fun thought experiment to just be like what would i have thought of this in 1980 if i didn't know any of what i know now i found myself as well uh, at moments feeling like it was underwhelming and at other moments feeling like the expanded universe of star wars kind of adds extra flavor to it like for example in in the 80s that scene of yoda lifting up the the x-wing was just like holy crap this little yeah. guy is picking up this giant ship and then i'm thinking as a fan like well if you see him in episode two he's throwing around pillars and flipping mm -hmm. like crazy like this is nothing for the guy um but then at the same time you have luke going on to that fight with vader and Yoda mm -hmm. and Obi-Wan, knowing how incredibly powerful Anakin was, is basically like, our, we're screwed. Like, our hope is dead. Like, Vader's going to destroy him. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of, it, it's a duality with it. It helps enhance it and it also kind of deprives me a little bit of it. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, you can't really ever unknow what you know. Um and, you know, a lot of us that love Star Wars, like deep, deep in our hearts, uh, are always sort of playing that game with ourselves, right? Where it's like, I have all of these hopes and expectations. And it's funny now with all the new content, it's only going to get more as we get older, 
right? There's only going to be more and more and more Star Wars from now until basically forever. And so we're going to be put in a position where we're holding, as fans, we're being asked to hold so much more Star Wars in our hearts sort of at, at all times that it's going to become a little bit more of a juggling act where some of it's going to be really disappointing and some of it is going to be really exciting and and all of it is going to bleed back into our experience of the original content here with the original trilogy and and color it and so like we are never going to be able to watch the original trilogy without knowing what we know you know even even <laughs> Even somebody like me, um, I, I have never lived in a world where there weren't three movies, right? Like there were always at least three in my world. And so I can't possibly retrograde myself to a place where I truly didn't know if Han Solo was going to make it out of the carbonite, right? Like mm. even I, I can't, I can't unknow that. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how younger generations and generations to come experience the original trilogy because of all of this stuff. Now this expanding and expanding probably forever, as long as it continues making money universe um, that's going to feed into all of this, this experience that we have. So it's, 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 it's really interesting and, you know, pretty much infinitely complex. Yeah, one of the one of the things that I was thinking about was, you know, how do I want my kids to experience this universe? Mm -hmm. And because there there's so many different ways of like, oh, this is the proper way of you know watching it. And I'm just like, do I ask them what they want, or do I just be like, this is what I, this is what you're gonna do, and I hope hopefully you love it. Like I don't know, like there's and like and then I have to incorporate all the TV shows and all this stuff, and I'm just like, oh man, like it's gonna be like the MCU where it's gonna just be like days of like. Yeah, let's just sit. Let's let's sit down and just watch all this. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I think it'll be hard for us, but this might be the case where every bit of Star Wars content, the more that there gets to be, every single tiny bit of it might become less special to our kids and their kids. Right? If there is so much of it, you know each bit of it might get devalued a little bit in sort of like a Star Wars inflation situation where the more you have, the less special each bit of it gets. And I hope that's not the case, but who knows? You know, um, there used to be three movies, then there were six, then there were nine, 12. You know, there's, we're getting, there aren't quite 12, right? There are 11, I think, right now, if you count Star Wars and Rogue One, I mean, uh, Solo and Rogue One. So there's 11 mm. canon films right now. And the Clone Wars. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a show. There are a couple of shows. Then there are going to be 10 more. But, you know, so, yeah, I, I'll be interested to see. And, and I don't know if there's a right answer, but it just might not be. It might not be the special thing to the coming generations as it is to us. Right. There's like a rarity or there used to be to a Star Wars thing that made it this like precious jewel that it might stop being to an extent, you know, not that it won't still be fun or entertaining or X, Y, and Z. So who knows? But let's dive a little bit into that precious jewel that is Empire. You brought up a great point, Trisha, on how this movie really focuses on character development. And 
I know we've talked in the past on our Empire part two two part podcast on how the beginning feels a bit slow compared to a lot of Star Wars movies, but mm-hmm. they kind of sacrifice the intensity of scenes for the sake of character development. What mm-hmm. do you guys think about that beginning part of kind of that setup for Empire? I mean, I am a big proponent as a screenwriter myself. I'm a big proponent of doing whatever you need to do to get the audience hooked into the characters. And if you can do that in an action sequence, then great. Um, But if you need to keep it sort of slow and that's also fine. Um, So a really good model is, you know, one of the greatest movies ever Jurassic park, which opens with, (laughs) sorry, it's my favorite movie, Um, which opens with like an exciting, tiny prologue. That's, you know, maybe two minutes long where there's a raptor attack and then a lot of character work. We don't see any dinosaurs for like a really long time after that um, in that movie. It's just like here, we're going to meet the, you know, we're please tell me you guys are very familiar with Jurassic Park. You're just staring at me. Oh, (laughs) of course we are. Of course we are. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I I was playing the Jurassic Park film scores at work all Friday. (laughs) We, we grew up, like, I think I watched that so many times. The VHS tape is, like, worn out. Like, dinosaurs are my world. So, yes. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's a great example, though. Like, you have a, a tiny little prologue where something really exciting is happening. Um, and then there's a ton of character development. We meet Grant and Sattler. We meet Hammond. We meet, every, you know, basically all of these characters that we need to know a lot more about in order to care about any of the dinosaur stuff later. Cause we absolutely wouldn't care about the dinosaur stuff if we didn't care about those characters. And I think that that's what empire does really well too. Like we have this sort of exciting scene that happens where they're like sending the droid comes, the probe droid comes to Hoth and you know, Luke's out there riding on his Tauntaun and it's like, what's going to happen. And then there's a little tiny burst of action where he's trying to get away from the Wampa um and but really like until until the actual hoth battle which is i think it starts like i didn't look i didn't check it this time but i want to say easily 15 minutes in or 18 20 minutes in mm. is when the hoth battle starts there really isn't a great big action sequence in, in empire and i think it's because you know we're spending a lot of time with han and luke and leia and i love that they did made the decision for there to be three years between the end of A New Hope and when Empire starts. So there's like three years of time that has essentially passed. Um, And so it allows us to, it creates this sort of mystery about, well, what's been happening? How are, you know, what's going on in the rebellion, but especially what's going on with Han and Leia? What's going on with Luke, right? Like we are wondering and, and really hungry for that information if we, you know, if we've seen a new hope, but even if not, those choices that those characters are making there in the first 15 minutes are really compelling and interesting choices in terms of character development. So it's, it's just good, smart screenwriting. And I think it's very strategic because you essentially have to make the, the Han Solo frozen carbonite have a lot of weight to it. And you have the, dilemma of Luke's basically not with them for a majority of the film. So how do right. you make that that part have a ton of weight? You have to do just 
a ton of character development in the beginning. And mm-hmm. I think they executed that very well. Um, I know we've criticized it in the past for that kind of slow start, but I can see strategically why that helps them. For sure. We have to... And this is one of my biggest critiques of the new trilogy, is that if you are going to invest the audience in the relationships. We have to spend time watching those characters with each other and being together, talking together, solving problems together, having interpersonal conflict, like all of that stuff. We have to spend a decent amount of time in that. If we are then, as you're pointing out, Gary, if we are then going to care when those relationships get torn apart. And so I think, yeah, dead on, this movie focuses a lot on that. And I still... You know, this is still a love triangle at this point in the <laughs> in this point in the world. For all anybody knows, this is a love triangle, and a love triangle is one of the most compelling things to watch in a movie. It just is loaded with tension and conflict, and it's interesting. I don't know. I like it. I know watching it. I like. I was like, oh, that's so weird, and and then I'm like thinking like now that I know like the relationship that Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher had off screen and, and like what she was going through and everything. I'm just like, this makes this movie so much more like, there's just like, there's so much more to it. And and I'm like, just, just focus on the movie. Like it's a good, just focus on the movie. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's dive into the romantic relationship with Han and Leia. So I find myself, I, I I'll admit, I love the prequels. Bad parts, awkward quotes about sand and all. I love the prequels, but the, it's obviously remarked on for its romantic romantic scenes with Anakin Padme being just god awful. And mm-hmm. then you have an Empire, very good, very well executed romantic scenes. And I always end up asking myself. Is the acting better? Is the dialogue better? Did they just luck out because Harrison Ford oozes charisma? Like, what makes the romance work well for this? I have lots of thoughts on this. Um, I think <laughs> yes to the Harrison Ford theory. Uh, he is just so charming. And he brought, you know, he pushed back a, a lot, you know, as is famously... Every story about him is like he's trying to rewrite the role, change the role, make it less stilted, less stuffy, um, you know, sort of this the more you know, out of the box, sort of, you know, unpredictable Han Solo that we love. And 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 that's you know, what an actor brings to a part is like not able to be duplicated. Um, a lot of the time there's just like a synergy that happens or just like this natural thing that grows out of casting the right person in the right role. And so like, <laughs> that's just magic and you can't, you can't do anything about that. That being said, um, there is a female screenwriter on this. Um, you have Lee Brackett here who, you know, did a lot of the, I mean, there's, we'll never, we'll never know how much of of Lee Brackett is really still in here. So she did early drafts of the script. And then um, George Lucas took it and did a couple drafts of his own. And then he handed it off to, to Lawrence Kasdan. Um, and so, you know, you get the sense that not a lot of the, like, actual words of Lee Brackett are still in it, but a lot of the bones of Lee Brackett are still in here. 
And I know that Lee Brackett's draft is much like there's a lot of the love triangle in Lee Brackett's draft. It was a big focus of this script. And so I think a lot of the what makes the chemistry between the three of them and especially between Han and Leia work is that sort of attention that was paid in the early um, stages of development here to that relationship. Um, you know, it's really, there's nothing we love more than seeing people who have feelings for each other and just try to fight it uselessly. It's just fun to watch. Right. But that. We know that Leia likes him. We know she doesn't like that she likes him. That's already fun to watch. So, and and he makes it hard to, you know, if he were in any way like shy or timid around her or fumbling or anything other than the sort of roguish character that he is, we would feel sympathy for him. And, and also we would like respect him less and like him less in the same way that Leia does. Like... She knows that Luke is like a better person and Han is like a much more dangerous person and she's drawn to that. I'm just like, it's just good character design. Like, I don't know how to say it other any other way. I'm glad you brought I up uh, Lee Brackett. Too. Sorry, what was that, Justice? I'm just saying, I'm glad you brought her up because I feel like she gets lost in the mix a lot of times. And I really do think that she contributed a whole lot more than we we think. Um, and, and so uh, they, just thank you for bringing attention to that. Yeah, I mean, Lee Brackett is one of the greats and always has been. Um, her work on The Big Sleep is just like, she's. I mean, she's amazing. If you haven't, if you don't know a lot about her or her writing, so she's a, you know, um, wonderful sci-fi novelist and then, you know, did a lot of great screenwriting work in her career. And um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I wish that, it, it, you know, it's hard to get your hands on a copy of her drafts of this or like any sort of, you know, there's so much obscurity around screenwriting um, in the movie business. But yeah, absolutely. And and I have to assume, like I said, I have to assume that the character work um, really contributed to this sort of beautiful or, or really compelling love story that we have at the heart of this movie, which is another reason why I think people love it. Like, it's a good space adventure movie with a really good love story in the middle of it. That's pretty much a sucker punch right there. Lots of cool action. And then there's also like people kissing. Not a lot of Star Wars have kissing in them. And it's just like fun to watch people kiss each other on screen, especially when we know it's like not, not necessarily going to work out. It's still compelling. Like that, that stuff is just good to have in a movie. People like it. All the Rise of Skywalker haters right now are just getting bad flashbacks of the Rain Kylo kiss off of you saying that. <laughs> not to open a can of worms there, but um, I was gonna say I'm not gonna touch that one. That's a different. That's a different thing entirely. That's all. Uh, that's a whole different podcast. But yeah, it is. Uh, I, I'd like to say too with the romance dialogue. I think a lot of it is just off the chemistry of the actors. Um, For sure. Theoretically, the dialogue is probably just as bad at times as the prequels. Like, I wrote down a few that I thought were especially cheesy. Like, Leia saying, I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. Like, uh, uh, that's a cheesy line if not executed by Carrie Fisher to Harrison Ford. Or like right. Carrie Fisher causing, calling him a scruffy-looking nerf herder. And Harrison Ford being like, who's scruffy-looking? Like, you take two other actors, and those lines would not be executed to the same degree. Well, yes and no. I think that, 
Leia has always been a really, um, just like a more fun and interesting character than somebody like Amidala. And, and, you know, when you look at the first, when you look at A New Hope, like, Leia is so feisty. She's so bitchy. I love it. Like, Laser Brain <laughs> is not necessarily harder to deliver <laughs> than, than, like, would somebody get this big walking carpet out of my way? Right? Like, it's, mm. that's essentially Good the point. same kind of a sentiment. And that's already embedded in the character. We know that Leia is like, right? She into the garbage chute, flyboy. Like, she's just, she is this sort of like feisty, wisecracking, you know, very outspoken character in a way that Amidala was never allowed to be because she's a diplomat and she has to be like, she's so serene and so subdued and, and not Natalie, Natalie Portman's performance only. That's the way that the character is written. She's written to be and unassertive she doesn't make choices people are telling her what to do and you know even when she digs in her heels and is being stubborn she isn't she doesn't have this um snappiness to her or this sassiness to her that leia gets to have and so i think there's just a character design thing happening here that care and carrie fisher i'm not knocking her performance she's amazing like george lucas lucked out so hard by managing to have Carrie Fisher in his movies because like what a badass she was at every moment you know she's like five, I don't know how tall she is I'm gonna guess she can't she can't be more than five four right so like and no Dan, when you I love the scenes where she's like walking next to Peter Mayhew and like his che- Chewbacca outfit and he's like three feet taller than she is but it's it, it's in you know you have a woman who carries herself with that presence um, who is not going to, who is not going to be tolerating any bullshit from anybody ever. And that's, I think the headstrong personalities of her and Han are just perfect to, you know, set to create these sparks. It's just, that's, those are the characters and, and it, it works so well here. Which for the people who love corrections on here, we got Carrie Fisher, 5-1. And to give a little uh, comparison, you got her feisty as all hell in A New Hope, right in the face of Vader, six foot six David Prowse. Like, I, I mean, it. that's just awesome. Yeah, I'm 5-1. So maybe that's also why I am drawn to her. You can... <laughs> Short women who carry themselves like they are seven feet tall are like my whole jam. I love it. Now, let's talk a little bit about the combat in this movie, because this was another area in which I thought I would be a little apprehensive about, because we're kind of spoiled in this day and age. Um, Very much. I, I don't know about you guys, but I thought the combat of all things really lives up well to the times. Probably not this, uh, like, better than New Hope, honestly, in my opinion. What are your guys' thoughts with that? Go ahead, Justice. Um, so one of the things that I noticed, like, right off the top was the lightsaber battle, and... Um, I know when I first watched Rebels, I was apprehensive of like the blade and you know the animation of it. But when I watched Empire and like they ignited their lightsabers, I'm like, oh my gosh! Like it looks so like it was so reminiscent of you know Empire and whatnot. And when like the blades just look so so cool. Um, and then also I think watching this time because of doing this podcast and diving deep and hearing all the backstories and you know how things were created i have just a much more appreciation of what happened um you know during the hoff scene and like the the you know the atats and the atsts and like the 
you know, it, it looks kind of, you know, somewhat a little cheesy, but like the, what they were able to perform, I just like appreciate it so much more. I mean, the Hoth battle is awesome. Like one of the things that Star Wars does really well when it's at its best is all action movies really is cleverly um, exploit the different elements within a scene in ways that aren't immediately obvious as the scene continues. So, you know, the, the Hoth battle is so cool because we see these ATATs and we see how they're walking. We see how they're moving. They're essentially robot dinosaur kind of things. Um, but they're really intimidating and scary. And then we're looking at the way that the, um, you know, that the rebel ships are flying around them and, we're seeing sort of the difficulty of the terrain. We're seeing sort of the difficulty of just the, the limitations on both sides of these different kinds of machines. And then inventively the screenwriters are pushing the characters to tackle their problems with sort of increasing like um, ingenuity. And so seeing Luke figure out how to like, you know, spiral around the ATATs and and make them fall down, and then you can shoot them in the neck, and then they explode. Like that's a surprise to us, and that is because of the design, and also because of this, just like a basic sort of action screenwriting technique of like set up these difficult elements and then force your characters to improvise within those constraints. That's just like basic action sequence writing, and it's really effective here. And seeing Luke, like, you know throw his grapple, whatever it is, magnetic <laughs> grapple up onto the underside of, I'm like, sure, um, up onto the underside of this ATAT, and then like cut it open with his lightsaber and throw a space grenade in there. Like that, and then he releases and just drops to the ground, which I think is like 40 feet. It doesn't seem safe, um, but it's <laughs> like, it's an inventive way to tackle that problem, right? Like we wouldn't have thought of that, but we enjoy, and I think that that stuff transcends how the CGI looks or how the special effects look. Those creative problem solving, like setting up cool elements like that. I mean, you know, you can knock um, Return of the Jedi all you want to, but like speeder chase is cool and it's the same thing. You have a difficult environment. You have very specific sort of ships that have limitations in the way that they navigate the environment and the characters exploit that environment and improvise and so they do like the drag line between the two trees and then they're like, you know, breaking and turning their speeders like in, in inventive ways. That's what makes action fun to watch. And it doesn't matter if the see if the special effects get old because the delight of, of seeing the characters outsmart the constraints of their situation it, that lasts forever. Absolutely. And I'd even add to that how kind of the aged effects techniques like you see in the mandalorian they try to emulate the same techniques because the way they portray these machines and the kind of strategies are so perfect um th- for example like the AT-ATs, um i was looking at these and i figured there's no way you could capture that awkward but menacing walk of those walkers mm-hmm. without the stop motion and you right. see them in the Mandalorian for ATSTs trying to capture the same look in CGI, working their ass off to get anywhere close, and it's still not the same. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that they've captured something special with the technology of the day. I agree. I mean, it just goes back to 
um, the word that I'm looking for, which is like our sort of suspension of disbelief, right? Um, we're, we are willing to suspend our disbelief to like a pretty significant level. I think um, if there's like consistency sort of in within the world and like, I don't know if you think about something like this is a, an interesting example that I'm thinking of only because of Yoda. But if you think about like the Muppets, right? Like Yoda is very clearly like a Muppet and, and baby Yoda is most of the time too. Um, and the way that, you know, the Mandalorian walks around and carries the child <laughs> Grogu um, the way that the Mandalorian walks around and carries the puppet is not believable, right? Like we know that we can see that he's carrying like an innate or like an inert object and like it's a puppet, right? But we're willing to go with it because they're, they are striving for consistency within the world. Whenever anybody carries baby Yoda, he kind of looks just like this potted plant. <laughs> and then they like set him down and they cut to a close up where his like ears move and you're like, all right. Um, but I think it's the same thing, right? That suspension of disbelief is something we're willing to go with. There's consistency in it. And also there's um, the characters are interacting with it in a totally like believable way. The characters buy it. We buy it if they do. And I think we're just willing to go with it. And it's, you know, it, I don't think, I don't know. I'm trying to think of an example where something like of like an old technology, the only ones that really bother me are the like ones that the ones that have aged. I don't know. There are, I guess there are some not in the star Wars universe, uh, but there are some in some movies that have just aged so badly because they were like early CGI, but I don't know. I'm a big I'm a big proponent of like if it's a practical effect and the actors or a puppet and the actors are actually interacting with it and they actually buy it, right? So like if you think about going back to Jurassic Park, you think about the triceratops that's actually lying there. It's an animatronic. It doesn't look or move like a real animal necessarily, although who's ever seen a real triceratops, so who knows. But the actors are interacting with it. And we see the wonder on their faces. We're like, yeah, yep, that's a thing that is there. It doesn't, might not look like a real animal, but if they buy it, we buy it. Um, and I think that the Mandalorian is best when it's leaning more towards those practical effects. So giving the actors opportunities to lean into that. And then also cutting edge CGI is also these days pretty good. So now, we we're talking a lot about Luke, Leia, and Han, but one aspect of Empire that I think is probably the main reason everyone loves this is that it really highlights Vader. Like Vader has such a bigger role; he's far more screen time than in A New Hope. Now, I I had my doubts going into this movie of kind of how much I'd love it until I saw Vader, and then every time mm. you see him, it's like the impact he does on the scene is incredible and even into the lightsaber fight i think vader even though we've been spoiled with the prequels um and the sequels with kind of more theoretically intense choreographed fights just vader's presence in the lightsaber fight adds a hell of a lot more i agree i mean first of all you know this is the movie where we first hear the imperial march um 
we don't hear it in a new hope and it's an incredible piece of music uh john williams does a lot of work there um as he does you know incredible work throughout the the entire star wars saga um but yeah i think that vader is almost made more menacing in this movie because he's acting he's just he just gets to be so much more proactive you know on in a new hope he's basically stuck on the death star the entire time until he gets in his like tie fighter and then you're just like all right um but he gets to be so proactive in this where he's like scheming and stuff and he's like getting bounty hunters to go after them and um he like force chokes a dude on a hologram how uh like there's just so much that he that makes him an even more terrifying villain and i think even knowing that he's acting on behalf of the emperor which you know is revealed in this movie um doesn't do anything to diminish him it makes him almost more of a loose cannon where it's like we see that he has a superior person that he's kind of answering to but it also just makes him like he's almost scarier because we we don't it, it's becoming a personal grudge for him and we can see that there's like yeah he's he's proactively scheming and it's yeah it's just like this very um he also i mean and we can get to this but he also faces luke for the first time in this you know in this movie and um by that point he's been built up to be so so intimidating and luke is our, you know, Luke is our protagonist, essentially, that that fight itself is already just like weighted with so much fear and intention that I think that also sets that fight apart as like being an epic battle or the epic battle that we think of it as. Right. We were, we were talking about how um, there's so much great character development in this movie. Um, and there, I feel like there's extreme amount of character development for Darth Vader on screen and off screen, just like how they, you know, with Luke and Yoda and Obi-Wan talking about him. Um, and then, you know, I hear a lot of times, like, he's my favorite villain. And so sometimes, like, I there's some other Marvel villains that I really like, but people keep on going back, like, Darth Vader is, like, the epitome of a villain. And watching this movie, again, just, like, again, set in stone, like how menacing he was, how much he captivates the audience when he's on screen and like what he's got going on is like, so just like, it's just inherently evil. Mm-hmm. Well, it's human, right? It's like, there's a, there's nothing less scary than like a wooden sort of villain that doesn't have like sort of human weakness or human emotion. Um, like a dastardly, but sort of impenetrable, you know, uncaring sort of presence. And that's kind of how Darth Vader reads in A New Hope, right? Where we don't know anything about him. um, And therefore, we don't know, like, what his deep desires are or what he's willing to do to achieve those desires. There's this sort of mystery that does make him scary. But the more that you humanize him, which, which Empire does really well, I think that's what makes him scary where there's something deeply human and I, and I don't necessarily mean relatable, but, but maybe I do where, you know, we, we see that the darkness in him is like human darkness and we know how greed, lust for power, you know, sort of personal pain, um, these different, you know, sort of really dark motivations, we know what they can do to people. And that's kind of what I was talking about with the spiritual, this being a spiritual movie. 
it's about the spiritual journey of Darth Vader as much as it is about Luke, right? So yeah, I think you're right about that. And they need to set up Vader as this intense character, again, kind of like I mentioned with the Han Frozen Carbonite, but to make the father reveal so impactful. Um, I mean, you see him super intense with force choking people and just destroying all his subordinates. And then also, as you mentioned, Trisha, looking a little bit maybe vulnerable when you come into his chamber and he doesn't have his helmet on. You see him scarred all over. Yeah. And all that adds so much more to the character so that the reveal at the end actually has the impact that it's meant to have. For sure. I mean, it's there's, yeah, a really deep psychological, you know, sort of Freudian thing about that reveal where we, you know, a lot of us have this conflicted relationship with our parents, but, you know, sort of our our parent figures stand in, you know, and especially in, in narrative, like classical narrative and myths and things like this, which Star Wars is, um, you know, our relationship with our fathers and father figures generally tend to be about actually like our sort of relationship with God, right? There's this sort of spiritual, like if God is our father, right, then um, how do we like understand ourselves as having, you know, our sort of place in this world? And I think that that's, the movie is really trading on that sort of spiritual psychological level with the twist. Um, you know, the Marvel universe is notoriously about fathers. It's like pretty much like on a deep sort of psychological level. It's like basically about nothing else. <laughs> like um, at least, especially Tony Stark's um, arc is completely about like fathers and fatherhood. And um, there's this yeah deep spiritual thing, you know, Thanos being a father yeah. as well. When you sort of look at the infinity, saga um as a whole and so i i think that spider-man yeah i mean yeah i mean exactly um so yeah i think that there's that sort of mythic archetype of like the father as this sort of mysterious god-like figure that um our relationship with him colors the way that we understand ourselves and that's i think at the the heart of what makes you know when luke goes into the cave and he sees his own face inside of darth vader's helmet there's some sense of I am inheriting this in some way, or this is also inside of me, the darkness that comes from Darth Vader. And I think that that plays into all of this sort of, um, you know, that sort of vertigo moment that you have when it's like, oh, he is my father. Okay, what does that tell me about myself? Who am I? What am I capable of? What's my destiny? What's my place, right? It, It sort of feeds all of that sort of existential angst. That and then also the questioning of authority too, because he has uh, Ben Kenobi and uh, and Yoda essentially saying that oh if you go and see Vader you're gonna die. He's wondering why they didn't tell him about this, and you have even Yoda adding in some kind of Jedi dogma of like don't ask questions with this, just accept it. And you can't mm-hmm. help but think Luke is just in this odd area of gray where he just doesn't know what to do next. I mean, absolutely, right? He has he has conflicting father figures in, in Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda, by, you know, in this movie by extension, um, on the light side and on the dark side of the Force. And he feels almost as betrayed by his father figures on the light side of the Force for con- them concealing the truth about his parentage as he does by learning that Vader is his father, right? Um, the line that I 
even with James Earl Jones saying it in his like, you know, chest rumbly, like deep voice, like the line about ruling the galaxy as father and son is just one that I can never quite like father and son. You're just like, ah, are you? Do you really care about that, Vader? Um, it's quite a stretch. It's very Shakespearean, which these movies kind of are very stilted and Shakespearean anyway. Um, but yeah, it's that offer has weight because like come to the dark side i'm offering you power and a relationship it's built into that offer is this potential relationship that luke has never really had in his life especially when he just you know learns that the people he thought of as sort of potentially father figures are maybe not to be trusted there it creates like sort of weight to that choice that vader offers him yeah, they, they basically failed him, essentially. And it also shows just how much they haven't learned from their past mistakes and aren't willing right. to uh, trust in the this person that they've in, you know invested time into. Yeah. I mean, there's a... It's pretty typical in the Star Wars universe to have characters that are sort of, like, trapped in, you know, like, childhood sort of regressed states, which Luke definitely is, where he's... And, and Rey really is in the new trilogy, where it's like... You are, in theory, an adult, but you are truly acting like a child where unless you, like, have a parent telling you what to do or your, like, deepest desire is to have a parent, right? Um, there's there's sort of this, uh, yeah, sort of suspended maturity um, that's happening with sort of our, our Star Wars protagonists here. Um, and I think that, but I think that because it actually is a continuation, it's a very smart psychological good, continuation of luke's journey from the first movie um where you know he has authority figures in his life like his uncle and ben kenobi but they're always telling him you know sort of what he can't do they're not really empowering him and then vader is offering to empower him really and train him that offering to help him grow up essentially and of course it, it ends up being this conflict that happens right here in empire that like gets him to that place where he can actually become sort of a jedi um even though that's what obi-wan kenobi and, and yoda are trying to keep him away from so i think this has this particular kind of if you can call it a coming of age story, but it really is sort of like this deep archetypal sort of spiritual coming of age story um, where you like learn this hard truth and kind of like work your way through it, which, you know, Luke fully does in return of the Jedi or moves towards doing in return of the Jedi. Um, I think that this was tremendously influential in star Wars overall. Cause they tried to do the same thing with Ray. Um, they tried to do the exact same thing with Ray, basically <laughs> in the new trilogy. Well, so I, I do have a, I guess I have a question is, um, you know, as a, you're a screenwriter and you know, um, there, this is arguably like the greatest reveal of all time. And, you know, they tried to emulate, uh, emulate that in the sequel trilogy. Do you feel, and I, I, I guess like I've heard this over and over is that like every story has been told already. Do you feel like there is an opportunity for future stories to where they can, have this great reveal uh, like this or um, be able to tell something that like this fantastical, or do you think it's just going to be um, them again, trying to either f- fail, trying to recreate uh, this awesome reveal, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I wish that they had, you know, there are all kinds of mythic archetypes um, and they went for the same one twice. Um 
here when they when they approached the prequel trilogy they went for essentially like a mythic archetype about understanding you know yourself on a spiritual level um in relationship with your sort of like quote-unquote destiny or you know where you come from this whole thing we've been talking about they tried to do the same thing with ray and they didn't have to they could have picked other like a different mythic archetype for her that being said i i think that this archetype is timeless um it's you know the hero's journey in it's not super dissimilar from Harry Potter, right? Like where Harry Potter realizes he has part of Voldemort, you know, in inside of him when Voldemort tried to kill him, he like basically chose him and he's inherited something from Voldemort that he can't like, you know, divorce himself from or detach himself from. Um, that's not, and Harry himself doesn't have a parent and he's betrayed by his parent figure, Dumbledore in a certain extent. So he has a light and a dark father figure. So I'm not saying that, we have to always look for a new myth because this myth continues to have power and resonance. Um, I just think that you have to be thoughtful and precise in the way that you execute it. Um, I think that the pre the sequel trilogy has a lot of problems that don't necessarily stem from them choosing this myth, even though it's the same one, they could have chosen a different one. They didn't, but they could have also done this one in a way that is as compelling as this or the Harry Potter story ends up being as compelling as this um, there, but you know, they were saddled by a lot of other concerns as they were making the sequel trilogy, putting it mildly. <clears throat> now I'd even add kind of onto what both you guys are saying that this established the idea of a big reveal in many ways. This established the idea of a big reveal mm. in cinema and a lot of filmmakers are trying to regain the spark that this ignited. Like you have the sixth sense, Bruce Willis being a ghost the whole time. Sorry, I'm about to spoil some I of everyone's say, biggest wow, films. I was going to say, wow, like a very um, large spoiler warning got, here. Yeah, very large spoiler. Hey, it's say, from the 90s. The you had your yeah, chance. You. Um, Dang it, guys. And even more recently with us... Um, that one with their bigger reveal dead. A lot of movies are trying to recapture that big reveal shock and awe. And I, I, I think it was well executed in Empire, but I'm hoping it doesn't become, a, like, like, for lack of a better word, more of a movie trope where it kind of degrades the intensity of the scene. I mean, this was hardly the first big twist, right? Like, this actually comes out after planet of the apes and planet of the apes is one of the most classic twists in in hollywood ever true um and so this is you know long after planet of the apes at this point not suits like a decade i want to say after planet of the apes um but yeah there you know there are twists in storytelling are a staple um the thing is you have to there's a lot that of work that goes into constructing a proper twist um, and they have to, like, these days we're cynical about them. We're just savvier moviegoers than we've ever been in the history of cinema. And so I think that's part of where the concern or the fatigue comes in, where it's like we're, we have our guard up now in a way that people didn't, you know, didn't used to. Um, and, and Empire is a, is a great example of one of the all-time greatest ones, but there's people are still managing to execute new twists um, in clever and surprising ways. Uh, I just think that it's a little bit hard. We just kind of know where to look for the strings these days. We're just a little bit more 
cynical. Mm. 21st century audiences are tough, man. Like we know too much about movie magic and we know too much about um, not just filmmaking, but storytelling in general. And um, there's this, yeah, real cynicism to our entertainment, um, which I find to be exhausting. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I like earnest entertainment and, uh, you know, the new star Wars movies feel like they, they're, there's this sort of meta awareness to them where like they know that they're star Wars movies and like they, they know that they're, ex- that they exist in like a, an important space or they like reference themselves in a way that is just, that feels unpleasantly like meta textual and um you know i don't know there's it's tough because you know any eight-year-old with a smartphone knows how movies are made now and uh it's just a a difficult world to try to tell a, a mythic story in you know we're just we're just tired of a lot of uh different kinds of filmmaking and so that's why i think we see um, yeah, more, not, not necessarily darker, but just, yeah, more c- sort of cynical, apolo- like movies that apologize for being what they are or kind of have to wink at us like they know what they are, like mm. the new Star Wars movies do. They, they're constantly sort of like just shy of looking right into camera going like, Star Wars, don't you see it? Don't you love it? Huh? Huh? Like they're kind of always <laughs> doing that to you as an audience <laughs> member. And it's tough. Now, to kind of finish it off, I'd like to talk about how Empire in general has basically influenced two of the more recent Star Wars properties. One being, like you mentioned, the sequel trilogy with TLJ as a sec- what is a second act Star Wars film. And then we'll get into The Mandalorian mm. to finish it off. So let's go into TLJ here. Now, Justice, you've talked before about how you think TLJ really parallels a hell of a lot with Empire. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the, you have the big reveal at the end of like who's raised parentage, like they, they really played that up, um, that having that, you know, like you were talking about earlier, Trisha, the whole, like that, that archetype, that mythos, that idea, um, is, is basically like, like that, I think that's like what's essential to Empire, um in a lot of ways and and they really tried to redo that in tlj so that's why i always have said um tlj is very close to empire but i do think that they break away from it as well where like you know uh you know kylo kills snoke and he's no longer bound to a higher authority um but i i I, again like i think it comes back to that reveal where it just seems like so familiar yeah i mean i thought about this a lot too because i was the reveal of ray being a nobody yeah sorry i thought about this a lot too as i was rewatching
the first order. And I think the similarities, too, come in the fam and critic reaction. Um, maybe more in the fan reaction. Um, because Empire, when it initially came out, a lot of critics bashed it, oddly enough. And you had a similar kind of backlash against TLJ. Um, and I, I think TLJ does still have a fair amount of spiritual element, but it's in less of a like Yoda, wise sage, hero story kind of manner. More so Rey as a character kind of discovering the darkness within her in a way and maybe discovering through kylo that darkness but that's a whole other can of worms as well um but there's definitely you could tell that rian johnson took a lot of from empire without trying to do what jj did of emulating it like with force awakens and but we've also talked about how like his whole thing when he makes movies is deconstructing that whatever it is and like he really, I think he did deconstruct Star Wars when he made TLJ. Um, oh, for sure, yeah. Brian Johnson is is very interested, more interested than he is actually in, like, I, I would say, 
and I love this about him. He's more interested in looking um, and like in what forms and manner we tell them, you know, uh, I'm a massive fan of Brick, um, but Brick is like a really amazing example of like, what is a detective story? <laughs> and it's just like that entire question is the movie Brick, right? Like what what is a detective why do we care about a detective? What is a detective story? What does that mean? Why do we tell detective stories? What sort of is that doing culturally? Knives Out is very similar, where Ryan Johnson is interrogating a genre. Um, and so, like, if you think about The Last Jedi as Ryan Johnson is interrogating a Star Wars, a Star War, right? Like, what is it? Let's drill down into what it is, why it is, what does it mean? Why do we care about it? You know, what does it have to have? What does it not need to have? Um, where can I push it to that that explores those questions? Um, and and if that's not the kind of film that you're after, then Ryan Johnson's probably not your man. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know what else to, to tell people, but uh, I, I like that about his films, but I do think it creates this sort of, again this sort of meta text watching a straight handed movie you're watching like sort of a, I don't know, like a PhD, like master, or like a, like a thesis <laughs> essentially that like is interrogating something like on a more intellectual level or like meta level. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the best way that I think I can describe the sensation of watching the last Jedi. Which, if The Last Jedi took Star Wars and did it from an intellectual PhD level, I think The Mandalorian took Empire and took it from a childlike joy level. Um, and Absolutely. Like, they've, they've definitely added in a lot of Empire flair among their own kind of style. Like, little things. Like, the Beskar container being the classic ice cream maker that the dude is running with in right, Cloud yeah, City. Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. Taking Boba Fett, a character that is inherently just there for kids to look at and be like, damn, he's cool. I want his action figure. And then adding more depth right. to him. And they really took that just basic joy from star wars and just enhance it like crazy yeah i i love the mandalorian for that reason um you know star wars has its origins in like flash gordon sort of cartoons like saturday morning cartoons um and you know that they they aren't interested in they're just sort of interested in like swashbuckling and like adventure um as like a really sort of basic like entertainment kind of genre approach um and the mandalorian i i love it for that reason like it doesn't it's not really trying to be cool it's not really trying to be smart like in the same way that you get the sense that you know something like the last jedi is trying to be really the mandalorian is just like here's some cool stuff that we like that being said i do think it is smart I think it's really well thought through. I think it's really smart. Um, the Mandalorian is referencing all kinds of stuff. You know, it's like a samurai movie. It's a Western. It's all, it's like, there's episodes that are different things. Um, but again, for the purpose of like, we're just going to make this really cool and fun um, and tell the, a story of this like little relationship between a bounty hunter who doesn't care about anything and then a child that he has to care about basically. Um, it's, just what a good ride. I think it's something that we've been hungry for in our Star Wars.
for sure. Yeah, it's really helped recapture a lot of that golden material that Empire provided for us as viewers. And especially with the people who grew up kind of like all of us with the VHS tapes watching Star Wars until they're, the tapes are basically trashed. Like it, it regains yep. that childlike feel. But there's, sure. a, there's a million and one things we can talk about with Empire and Star Wars, and we barely scratched the surface. But again, I'd like to thank you so much, Trisha, for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, it was such a pleasure to be here. I, I never need a, an excuse to talk Star Wars, trust me. Now, where can our listeners go to find out more about you and about Beyond the Screenplay and Lessons from the Screenplay? I mean, you could easily Google either one of those names and... You- You'll probably land on us. Uh, Lessons from the Screenplay is our YouTube channel. Um, and then our, our podcast is Beyond the Screenplay. We're on every you know podcast platform. Um, we do episodes on, like, each episode is on a different movie. So we, and we bounce all over the place. We've done classic films. We've done, like, we have a, an episode that's dropping really soon. It'll probably be out by the time this one is on Mank. So like really recent films we're also doing. Um, And, you know, like I said, we're all sort of screenwriting narrative, like analysis sort of focus on just like, let's break apart what's actually in here and uh, how, how we admire it, how it makes us feel, all of this stuff. And so um, it's, bless you. Thank you. Sorry. That's okay. Um, But yeah. And then, yep. And uh, yeah, my name is my name is Trisha Rand. You can also I'm on I'm on Twitter at Trisha Jean A. So you can always tweet at me also. All right, and like usual, everyone, you can get in touch with us at Pod Wars Podcast on Twitter and ask Pod Wars Podcast at gmail.com. Please send us those five star reviews. It really helps out the show. And on that note, have a great week. <laughs>